We started something last week that simply for the sheer magnitude of information, we couldn't finish. So it felt like it was most appropriate to make it into a a two-part message in the midst of this entire series. So a series within a series or a mini-series within a a larger series through the book of Colossians. Uh, As we've thought about this, uh, the study through Colossians and and where he's gone with it, Paul, as he's written it, it's uh, one of those things that you really have to to appreciate where he's come from, where he's at. And again, I won't relive all that that we've talked about over the past couple of weeks, but remember the first part of, 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 of Colossians is dealing with just the fact that Christ is enough. You, you put whatever issue out there in your life, you put whatever problem, you put whatever dream, you put that there, and if you can somehow see Christ in it, go with it. Absolutely go with it. And, uh, I mean, Christ is supreme. He is enough. That's it. Fill in the blank. Let, let, let God take care of some of those details as, as you live out your life. That gets tough for some. It's tough for me. It's tough for a lot of us to try to live that out that. And that's where I think we are in, in the midst of this is because when you get to chapter 3 and chapter 4 and you finish out the book, you find him really giving us the nuts and the bolts of, of the Christian faith. And last week we only touched the surface and just really began to see it's difficult to live life at the level and the faith at the level that uh, we're talking about here. And it's not just some easy believism, laissez-faire kind of, kind of faith. It's real. It's life-changing. We talked about priorities last week changing. We talked about the whole idea of our vision or our focus and where our mind is. We talked about our identity and where it is. And to be honest with you, and I've thought this all week long in preparation for today, I thought, I'm going to lose some people today. If I didn't lose you last week, I lost you. I'll lose some more today. Because there's a lot of people that like to get on the whole Christ bandwagon, and they like to go with Jesus for a while. I mean, you saw it even in the life of Christ. They like to go that, that path for a while, but man, whenever you really get in there and you really understand the level and intensity of what it means to follow Christ, there's a lot of people cashing the chips. It's like, oh, I wasn't in for this one. I wasn't in for this long. They get off the train, they cash in their chips, whatever metaphor you want to throw in there. It's like, I don't want that much. I don't need that much. I just need a little bit of God to get me through my trials. I just need a little bit of God to get me into heaven. I just need a little bit of God, whatever, and that's good enough for me. And I'm just really, really, really happy with just coming here on Sunday, listening to the band, having my kids in some classes, and going home and being the same. I really, really, really don't want to have any of that life-changing stuff. I'll leave that for you clergy people or you, you preacher people. Uh, you know, the reality is, is that's not reality. That's not real faith. Real faith is life-altering. I think Wilbur Reese said it kind of, he said it very well in his sarcastic way. He said it like this. He said, I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please, because that's what a lot of people would like to have. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of him to make me love a black man or pick beets with a migrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. 
And I look at that and I laugh because though we would never say it like that, we really do want ecstasy, not transformation. We want heaven, we want the eternal, but we don't want the, the, the life-changing relationship here and now. We don't want a million dollars worth of God that it might cost us a million dollars or it might cost us our life. God forbid. I just need three dollars of God in a sack and let Him take Him with me wherever I want Him to go. That's the concept I'm afraid we have in our modern-day Christianity. That's the concept that I think has given black eye to Christianity, that this is what the faith is. This is really what it is. And it's so much more than that. It's so much deeper than $3 worth of God. G.K. Chesterton, I've quoted from him often. He's one of these writers that if you read him, you can't go very far with him because he's so deep in just one phrase or, or whatever. But I think he said it very well. He said, Christianity has not so much been tried and found wanting as it has been found difficult and untried. See, I don't believe that there are people who jump into Christianity with all their heart, with both feet, immerse themselves into a relationship with, with Jesus Christ and enter into that relationship and then come on the backside and say, you know what, it didn't work for me, you go try it. I believe those people have looked inside, they've seen some hypocrisy, they, they've seen some shallow thinking, they've seen lack of transformation, they've seen all of that, and they, or they've seen the difficulty of it, and they really don't want that much of God. They're fine with $3 worth of God in a paper sack. That's not at all what faith is. That's not at all in any shape or form what Christianity is about. And that's why I said when we turned to chapter 3 and we got halfway through our study through Colossians last week, I said get ready because the first part's dealing with that Christ is enough and then the second part is dealing with how we live out Christ being enough. And how do we live that out? And we talked about just real quickly in review that our priorities begin to shift. No longer is it about the stuff because He tells us to seek the things that are above. And you know, how do you seek the things that are above? And we just live for the stuff. Man, we buy stuff and we sell stuff and we save stuff and we hoard stuff and, and we uh, think about stuff and we're living in the stuff period. This is the stuff season. It's all about stuff. Stuff, 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 stuff. We live for it. We dream about it. It's our life. But what he says in verse in the very first part of Colossians 3, he tells us to seek the things that are above. No longer is it about the stuff. Now it's about something that is eternal, something that's above us, something that's far beyond us. Something that's going to last forever. And the only two things I can think of that's going to last forever is God and people. We're all going to live somewhere, and God is forever. And so if I'm going to seek the things above, I'm going to try to make life better for you and life better for me, and not necessarily in stuff capacity, but I'm also going to make sure your internal capacity, you're, you're, you're better on the inside than you are anywhere else. Again, last week, just in, as a review, if you remember, we talked about com, uh, being conformed versus being transformed. We're really good. We are really good at making sure we look good on Sundays and Mondays and Tuesdays. We're really good about making sure that we look the part and sound the part when we get around Christians. We're good about taking the external and making it plastic and making it look like we want it to look. We give the appearance of how we want it to look. And that's how we live out our life in this appearance sake. But that's not at all what, what real Christianity is. Real Christianity doesn't start from the outside and work its way in. It starts from the inside and work its way out. 
It actually we're actually transformed from the ex internal, and then it changes our external. It changes us. But I'm afraid, unless we have a shift in priorities, unless there's a complete shift of that of our values, then we miss it. The second thing we talked about last week was that it begins to change the focus, the focus of our thoughts, the focus of our mind, and where we're going. He said, not only seek the things that are above you, set your mind on the things above. No longer again do we, you know, our thoughts feed our, our heart. Our heart determines our actions. That's throughout the book of Mark he talks about that. So what, what is it then? What are you thinking about? What are you dreaming about? Where, where's, your, where's that at in your life? And that will determine a lot of where you're going to be in the future. We talked about that last week. We talked about your identity. Who are you? No, who are you really? I didn't... I don't want to know what your title is. I don't know what your position is. You might be Alex's dad and you might be Emily's mother and you might be this on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. And, and I know that's what you do, but it's not who you are. You might bear this title and have a big, big, a nice office and, and have this nice title and be over people and other people under you. And, and you can have all that. And if I ask who you are, you might say, I'm the something, something of something, something. And as you're that something, something, you know what? You might not have that something, something title a year from now. So does that mean if your children move out of the house, and I know you do want them to move out of the house. You do want them to grow up. And uh, you do want that graduation. You do want, but also you may lose your job. You may change jobs. And if your identity is your children and your jobs, then you're missing it. Where is your identity? Christ who is our life is what Paul said. Who is your life? If you put your life in a picture beside your life, who, what would that picture look like as a definition of who you are? See, this is something that we're talking about change. We're talking about deep down, dark, dark change, light change, light on the outside, change on the outside, change on the inside, change at all points, changing our attitudes, changing our postures, changing change. For us, it means a whole lot of differences for us when we become a follower of Christ. Listen, get this down, please, please. I beg you to listen to this. You got one life. One. You don't have two. If you can figure out how to get two, let me know. I want it. But you got one. Don't be a poser. Don't be a person who has the language, who has the appearance, who has the theology even, but doesn't have the life, the real life of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a Christ follower. Listen, you can fool me, but when I get close to you, or when somebody really gets close to you enough to look you in the eyes and to walk with you through life, they'll know the real you. Where's your identity? Your priorities? Your focus of your mind? Your identity will be changed when you become a follower of Christ. But now, he doesn't give us a lot of nuts and bolts on that. He actually, after he lays this foundation, the first four verses of uh, chapter 3, he then develops it. And so that's where we'll pick up today. And, and I want us to think, think about this. So you'll be finding Colossians chapter, <clears throat> excuse me, chapter 3. And we'll look at Colossians chapter 3 there in just a moment.
But as you think about this passage of Scripture and you think about your level of what you want in Christ and where you are in that, please try to put a value on that. Are you just happy with $3 worth of God? Not enough to really change you, but really enough just to make you safe? Or do you want more? Because I think there are some things in our life that this is going to take a gradual process, kind of an evolutionary process, that you walk through this faith journey and maybe you're here today and you've been exploring Buddhism or, or Zen Buddhism or Hinduism and uh, you know, your own kind of concoction of your own kind of faith. You just kind of waltzed in here today and you've been here maybe for a couple of weeks and you're thinking, hey, I'm kind of leaning in on this. This kind of makes sense. It's kind of, I can see the dots connecting here and I'm, I'm looking at this Jesus guy. As the, as the answer. And if you're there today, I want, to, I want to warn you, it's going to be a lifetime process. But also there are going to be times in your life where you're going to have to do some hard shifting. Those hard shifts that make some serious changes and make some radical changes in, in your life. And I was trying to think about what's an example of a real hard shift in life. I mean, you think about those of you who... Remember when you had your first baby? I mean... When you were just a newlywed couple and you were just dating and, and then you were married and it was those, those days and you just thought about them. You, you know what? You could do anything you wanted at any hour of the day that you wanted, anywhere that you wanted, and there were no obligations. And all your friends around you used to say, your life's going to change. And you said, no, I don't like that. State. I remember we heard it and we've told everybody that we've seen since then because we'd do all kinds of Whatever you do, whenever you want to do it, just... It, and all of a sudden, you can be literally nine months and one day pregnant, and within 24 hours, your life's rocked. I mean, it is rocked, and things are changed, and your priorities, and your focus, and all of those things that I just talked about, your identity, all of those things just changed. What happened? There was a birth encounter. Well, there's a spiritual birth encounter that happens, and when it happens, life changes. And unless you can point back to that, then it's not some evolutionary thing and all of a sudden you become spiritual. Uh-uh. It is a life-changing encounter. And I want to bring out, because what Paul brings out here, I want to bring out two monumental changes. Monumental changes in the new you. As we talk about this extreme makeover you edition, what does the new you look like? And one of them right off the bat, I'll tell you, is a hard shift. The first one is really kind of a hard shift in your life. And the number one uh, monumental change that you will undergo is an execution of the old you. An execution of the old you. Yes, I do mean death. Yes, I do mean killing. Bringing out the weapon. Whatever it takes. Killing a portion of you. And that is not a fun sight. That's not a fun idea to think about that, but if we don't kill it, there's a part of us that mutates, that reproduces, that, that morphs, that changes, and then all of a sudden, every area, if our life is made up of ten categories, let's say, just because that's all the fingers I have, and we have ten categories out there, all of a sudden, every area of our life is infiltrated by these areas that we almost don't even recognize because we've had them since birth. And they're natural to us. They're, I mean, they're, 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 just, they're just who we are. And so here we are in all of our life. Unless I go in, unless there is a spiritual killing execution that goes on, those things stay with me. And I've got to get rid of them. 
Because these are the things that are holding me down. These are the things that are separating me from God. These are the things that are messing with my life. And I've got to get rid of them. Got to get them out of my life. And so this is what Paul says in verse 5. He makes no bones about it. He says, therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead. He, he talks about death here. It's not exactly, again, the most pleasant topic of conversation at church. Let's talk about death. Let's talk about killing. Let's talk about executing. But he's talking about there needs to be a part of our life that literally dies. We need to consider it dead. We need to see it as dead. He's not talking about killing our bodies. You can tell that he's, there's a spiritual thing. He says, consider it dead. Consider these things dead in your life, the members dead in your life. And we've got to understand that these things have got to be taken out of our life and dealt with. This is a part that happens every day of our life. It's going to happen today for me. It's going to happen tomorrow for me. I'm going to have to get up and kill something tomorrow. I'm going to have to get up and kill something the next day. I'm going to have to kill multiple things on multiple days at multiple times. Because I'm going to be constantly fighting these little things that are in my life. And these little things are trying to tear me down and tear my part, part of my relationship with God. And that's exactly what Jesus said when He said in, in Luke chapter 9, verse uh, 23, He said, If anyone wishes to come after Me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow Me. He said, take up his cross daily. Now, today in our culture, crosses are used for necklaces, they're used for tattoos, they're used for wall hangings. You can get all kinds. There's Gothic crosses, there's decorative crosses, there's every kind, there's there's Celtic crosses, there's all kinds of crosses out there. But you would not dare find in the first century anybody putting a cross on their body, hanging a cross around their neck, however ornate it was. It would be equivalent in our day to hanging an electric chair around our neck or, or taking an electric chair and putting it in our, in our living room as our decoration. You don't do that. That's crazy. Well, that's a pretty good time-out chair for, for a child if you needed it for that. <laughs> Plug it in if they don't behave. I'm kidding. <laughs> but the whole concept here is death. It's not, it's not some beautiful, ornate thing. It's death. It's blood. It's, it's getting rid of something. It's something that once was alive and now it's dead. And He's telling us to die. He's telling us to do it every single day of our lives. Take up your cross daily. Paul says consider your, your, your members dead. Now, there's a couple of things about death that we need to understand today. One is, is that death is typically avoided at all costs. Okay, we don't go out seeking death most of the time. Healthy people don't seek death. Okay, they avoid it. They, they, they run from it. There's this thing in us called self-preservation that we'll fight against death. We want our lives to be good. We want our lives to be blessed. And, and so we'll push back on death. We don't want death. We'll, we'll live better when, when death... But He's telling us to die here. You know, the idea is, is that I'm living my life and I'm going this way down this path in life. And all of a sudden, I realize that this path that I'm on is not the right path. 
Now, it could be any kind of event. It could be an event that enters into my life. It could be a spiritual encounter with somebody that enters into my life. It could be any number of things. So I'm not even going to begin to imagine what, what it is or what it, what it has been for you. But all of a sudden, you look at your life and you say, man, this is not where I want to be. I am far from God and I want to be close to God. I am separated from God and I want to be connected to God. And all of a sudden what you do is you do this U-turn and you come back and you get on the right track with God and you get on the right course with God. In one word we call that repentance. I like what the Puritan Thomas Watson said about repentance. He says repentance is the vomiting of the soul. I've talked about death and vomiting. So I'm really ranking up there on manners today. Vomiting of the soul. The idea that I would literally empty out the filth, the trash, the sickness of my life. And I would get rid of it. The problem is is that many times we don't. We hang on to the very things that cause us death. Verse 5 again, he says, says, Therefore consider the, the members of your earthly body as dead. To what? To immorality. To impurity. To passions, to evil desires. To greed which amounts to idolatry. Now he has a lot to say there. He he talks about immorality. He talks about impurity. What about your life is impure? What about your life is the motives aren't right? You have impure motives. Your thought life isn't on track. There's an impurity about that that's not right. What about passions? Anything in your life? Now, listen, I love passion. I'm a passionate person. When I do something, 100,000% I'm going to put into something. I'm a passionate person. John Eldridge in his book, uh, Wild at Heart, is a great book on passion in a man's heart and how that passion needs to be there. But, you know, a passion, if I just have passion unbridled, passion uncontrolled, passion out of control... Man, I'm like an animal. Okay? He says passion, impurities, immorality, evil desires, greed. Now, stop right there. Because if you think about the first ones, we would all list those as evils. Immorality, absolutely. Impurity, absolutely. We have no problem with that list of things. But when you come to why did he lump greed in with this? See, and greed gets more attention than any of the other ones out there because he even actually gives a definition to greed. He says, because greed, which amounts to idolatry. And see, I want to say to you today, and everyone in this room today, you might not have fallen under the first one or two. You might not fall under all of them. But I'm a saying that... I, I, I'm a saying. Uh, <laughs> I am saying that many of us suffer with that one. Many of us suffer with the greed element. And he even gives definition to it. Greed is that similar, that which becomes idolatry. We might have the big G God as our God. We might say we were going to follow Christ and all that kind of stuff. But we allow little G gods to push the big G God out. We allow other things. And many times it becomes the stuff. It becomes the money. It becomes the things around us. Verse 7. Follow along there. He said in verse 7, he said, and in them you also once walked. You used to walk in these. This is the way you used to live your life. You used to walk in them. Now down in verse 8 it says, But now also 
put them all aside. Put them all aside. Take them off. Take off the dirty garments. Put them aside. Here's some more for you. Anger, put it aside. Wrath, put it aside. Now what's that? You know what anger is. It's when you lose it. It's when you may not lose it on the outside, but you're losing it on the inside. You're just, you know, it's, it's, you know, you can be angry and sin not, but sometimes we don't, can't draw that line, especially in the midst of anger. You know what wrath is? Wrath is when the anger wasn't good enough and now we've got to act on it. Malice? Oh, that's when we just take it to a new level. Slander? That's like, okay, I, I, I've done everything I can in wrath and anger. Now I'm going to go out into the public and I'm going to do what I can to tear somebody down with my words. An abusive speech from your mouth. These are all the things that I've got to die to. I've got to die. I've got to kill. They've got to be gone out of my life. But there's a part of us, it's the makeup of who we are, that we don't tend to kill those things. Self-preservation somehow kicks in. We let our anger control us. We let our words set the pace for us. There was a Hasidic rabbi who said this, on his deathbed, he said, When I was a young man, I set, set out to change the world. When I grew older, I perceived that this was too ambitious, so I set out to change my state. This too, I realized as I grew older, was too ambitious, so I set out to change my town. And when I realized how I could not even do this, I tried to change my family. Now as an old man, I know that I should have started by changing myself. If I had started with myself, maybe then I could have succeeded in changing my family, the town, and even the states. Or who knows, maybe even the world. See, the problem with so much of what we see in the world, listen, and don't take offense to this, but just see it as a reality check, is merely a reflection of ourselves. The problems with our family, it's not some weasel from the outside. It's ourselves. And unless we kill that portion of ourselves that's tearing us down, we will continue to die in the midst of our anger, our malice, our immorality, our impurity, our passions. You fill in the blank. And the thing is, is that Paul, is, this is not an exhaustive list. He could have gone on and on and on. First truth about death is death is typically avoided at all costs. Second truth is that death gives life. Death gives way to life. Now, we don't normally see it as that. We see death as the finish line, death as the end, death as the last chapter, death is kicking the bucket, death is, you know, you've crossed over, it's all that kind of stuff. But death is actually not the end. Death is the end of the beginning. We're really only starting to live at that point. We're only really kicking it into high gear whenever we kill those things that are wrong in our life, kill those things that are holding us down and pulling us back, kill those things and get rid of them. Then, when, then and only then are we beginning to live. Let me give you a beautiful example of this. It's what's happening right now in our men's fraternity group. They have two groups, one on Monday and one on Wednesday. We just, we're finishing up our Monday group tomorrow, and we just finished up our first semester uh, and as, as we've gone through this, we've learned a principle here. It's called the paradox principle. It's kind of tough because it doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit into our paradigm. 
And, and, and the paradox principle is this. And guys, if you're in men's fraternity, show and impress your wife for just a moment how much you've learned and make me look good. And, and answer, fill in this blank, all right? Ready? You know, if you want to live, you must... The principle in this is that death brings life, not death brings death. But death brings life. The example I can give you is that for the past semester we've been talking about uh, understanding our spouses. Understanding your spouses. Understanding your spouses. Your spouse isn't going to be like you. She doesn't have your personality. She doesn't have the same needs you have. You've got to understand your spouse. Die to yourself. And then whenever you die to that and you are now able to really love your spouse, then you're really going to be living. And it's been beautiful. I've had emails and phone calls and conversations from wives saying, thank you for what you're doing. To my husband, listen, I'll promise you this. I'm not doing a thing. It's merely the truth happening in them. They're realizing, hey, I need to die over here. She's not me. She's not going to be like me. But I need to understand her. That's what the Bible says. So I'm going to, be, I'm going to do that. And therefore, my marriage is better. We've had the best retention rate in men's fraternity that we've ever had. Just because it's beginning to connect the dots. People are realizing, hey, when I die, I actually live. And that's the beauty of what I'm talking about entering into this relationship with Christ is that really it's, it, I've got to kill some things in my life. I can't keep going. If I always do what I've always done, I'll always get what I've always got. If I just keep going on, no. Something's got to die. And those things that he just mentioned are just a few of them. And then I can live. Now you just take, that was marriage that we just talked about in the men's fraternity. You take that just one area. We're going to come back next semester and talk about children and next semester and talk about work. What if in every area of my life I found an area, a principle, a truth from God's Word and from the Christian faith and I died in that area, what kind of life would come out of that? What kind of life would come out of that? But instead we let anger be our our stronghold so that nobody will come through and we'll always be strong and be able to overpower anybody who comes around us. He tells us to, to kill that anger inside of us. There needs to be an execution of the old you. The second, monumental life change of the new you is the emergence of a new life. The emergence of a new life. Dying makes room for living. Dying makes room for, for getting rid of the old and letting the new come into being. Let me, let me give you an example of this. I talked about greed earlier. Now, just think about this with me. If I'm a greedy person, and it's all about me, and it's all about stuff, and I literally live from greed to greed, from a moment of greed to a moment of greed. Okay, you say, I may not be that far out, so okay, just monitor yours down, adjust yours, however. But if I'm over here and I'm, I'm greedy, I want more, can't get enough, want the next promotion, and striving forward, whatever it is. And I'm all about greed. You know what I can never be? I can never be generous. I can never be generous because I'm all about greed. And until I kill the greed of my life, I can never let the new life of generosity come out of me. Let me give you another example. Let's say I'm an angry person. Let's say I'm angry at you. I'm angry at life. Let's say I'm angry at my spouse. I'm angry at my, I'm angry at my parents. I'm just angry. And the same thing is, is that some of you, as soon as I just started describing that, you said, that's me. That's me. Some of you all don't even realize it's you. 
We live in this anger. And I don't point fingers. I don't know who you are, but I just know that's the reality of a lot of people living in anger. Anger, 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 malice, slander, all this kind of stuff is going on in my life. You know what? If that's my life, you know what can't be living in my life? Forgiveness, love, acceptance, mercy, grace. Until I kill these things over here, these things that God wants to live in me, the emergence of the new life can't happen. This has got to die first. Are we tracking together here a little bit? This means yes, this means no. Verse 10. And he tells him in verse 10, he says, and have put on the new self. Have put on the new self. Now, in verse 8, he just got through saying, taking off the old self. Now, we don't get it so clearly in the English translation, but in the Greek, it's really talking about getting undressed and getting redressed. It's talking about taking off the anger, taking off the filth, taking off all of that stuff and putting it down. Burning it if you need to. Do whatever. Get it off your body. Verse 8. Verse 10, he turns right around. He says, now what we're going to do is we're going to put on some new stuff. We're going to put on the new you. We're going to, we're going to look different. We're going to come out of here on a, on, a, on a different side. So he tells us, and you can underscore it if you want in verse 10, and put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. This is beautiful. Not only are we being made new, but we're made, being made new in the image of the one who created us. We're being made new like Christ. We're being made new like God. We're not just not the new and improved. We're the new like God. And you'll never be God and I'll never be God. But I want to be like Him. As much as I can. And the only way is if I die to these things and I allow these new things to live and I put on these new things. There's three things that He tells us in the remaining verses that makes up the new you. One is a barrier breaker. You become a barrier breaker. No longer are barriers a part of you. you I, I've said it before in the very first message in this series that Christianity is most known for what we're against than what we're for. We're better about building walls than we are about tearing down walls. You don't believe like me? You stand over there. You're, you're a Democrat? Well, I'm a Republican. I'm a Republican. I don't care if you're a Republican or an Independent or whatever. You're over there, over here, I'm over here. You're a man, this is your place. You're a woman, this is your place. You're black, I'm white. We get these barriers in, out there. You don't believe like me and act like me. I can't, I can't love you or be around you. Look what he said in verse 11. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek or Jew. No distinction between Greek or Jew. Oh, they believe differently. Yes, they do. There's no distinction. Circumcised, uncircumcised. Barbarian, Scythian, slave, free man. But Christ is all in all. You can't find one person out there, one people group, one whatever. Christ is, is the same Christ there as He's everywhere. And, he, and He's every bit there. It's the totality. And what a, what, a, what a believer will do is he will not try to segment his Christian culture over here, but he will spill out and he will spill over and he will break down barriers and he will embrace differences. 
Is there going to be a difference in my conduct? In my yes. Doesn't mean I go out and live that the immoral, impure, passionate life that I was once living. But there should be a difference, and there should be a a, a barrier breaker. We shouldn't have barriers between us. What is it that separates us from people around us? They're different than us. Maybe they have piercings, but they have piercings in places that you ought not have piercings. You know, maybe they have tattoos. It's okay to get a tattoo in World War II, but it's not okay to get a tattoo in this day. I don't know what it is. What is it that separates us? And why can't we just embrace one another? One translation even uses the word tolerant, that we might become more tolerant. Here's a verse. Psalm 133, verse 1 says, And how good and pleasant it is for brothers to live together in unity. Matthew 5, 9 says, Blessed is the, are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Now, don't miss that verse. That's a beautiful verse. Blessed are the peacemakers. How are they going to be known? They're going to be known as the sons of God. I can literally change that phrase there. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called Christians. Sons of God. Christians. Look at it like this. In your world, how much peace have you brought into it? How much peace is in the relationship because of you? How much peace is between you and your children because of you? How much peace that, that if literally, if you pulled out, you might be the only one there holding it all together, but you are the element of peace that's there. See, a child of God, a real life, real stuff Christian, is that they bring peace to a situation. They break down barriers. They don't build up barriers in this world. Number two. Second thing that will emerge from you is that you will become a bridge builder. And once the barriers are gone... The differences don't matter as much. Then you can start building a bridge to somebody. Building a bridge to their life. And you know how you do this? You do this through your posture and through your attitude. 100%, I'll say this. You build bridges into relationships through your posture and your attitude. If you have a better than you attitude, it won't build a bridge. You'll build a wall. Bridge builders are the ones who step into people's lives and and they actually bring words like compassion, love. They'll, they'll, they'll bring words like patience. Here, look with me at uh, verse 12. He says, So those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved, put on the heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. These, these are things that you don't get in the world. Compassion. Where do you find that? That happens when you show compassion. I can look at my life today and say, I'm a compassionate person. I'm a kind person. You can't be kind unless you give kindness. You can't be compassionate unless you give compassion. Who in your life right now are you pouring into? And their life's better off because of you. That's when you start building a bridge. Go on, keep reading with me. He says, gentleness and patience and bearing with one another, forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against you. 
forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against you. That's the whole idea that, that, that I can forgive. I, I can literally look into somebody's life and, and give something. For, see, forgiveness is never earned. And we have made it that. I've heard it so many times. I can forgive, but I can't forget. And I understand it's hard to erase memories. But then they hang it over their head. They lob it out there. And they keep it out there. And there's always a wedge in the relationship. Forgiveness is free. It's free. And the only way that will happen is when this new me merges, when the anger is gone away and I kill the anger and I kill the malice and I kill all that stuff, then I can learn to forgive. We're going to be doing some ministries around here once a quarter at least called Faith in Action. And we'll just have a compilation of ministries that you can tie yourself into right now. I mean, we've, we've done a Boys and Girls Club uh, party yesterday. had a great response on that. We've got bell ringers with the Salvation Army that we, that we just still need lots and lots and lots of volunteers for that. And all it takes is your time, just, just time and a heart of compassion. And a heart of wanting to give and serve and kindness, okay? These elements that I'm talking about right here. You know, we're doing a food drive. We're doing all these things. In the spring, we'll do a whole other set. Why do we do this? Do we do this because you don't have anything else to do with your life? Do we do this just to buy some time from you and take some... No, 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 no. We do this here to create, hopefully in you, an awareness and excitement about giving and about living out the Christian faith. And listen, I can stand up here all day long and preach ten messages on compassion. But the best thing to do is preach one and give you ten opportunities to show compassion. I can talk about kindness all day long. I can parse the verb. I can do all that kind of stuff on kindness. I can give you pictures of kindness. Or we can give you opportunities to go out and be kind. And all we're trying to do is we're just trying to build into you and build into me a lifestyle of compassion and kindness. So that when I enter into this world, and you go into your world, you'll be building bridges instead of building barriers. Knock down the barriers. Build bridges. And you know what's going to be amazing when we do this? It leads me to the third element that comes out of you when you become, when you allow this new self to, to emerge, and that you become a regular worshiper. You say, Mike, I'm here every Sunday. I never miss. I'm somewhere. If I'm not here, I'm somewhere. Worshiping, I always love. I love a great band. I, I love... You, you've missed it. This is not worship. Oh, yeah. Okay, it's a part of it. But you know what? You bring your worship. You bring your worship in your attitudes. You bring your worship in, in how you've lived out your life. You bring your worship here on Sunday, and then we offer it up corporately. Please listen to this. Whenever I go out and I'm allowing my life to live out this new life, not this old life, this new life, and I'm giving forgiveness instead of anger, and, and I'm giving kindness instead of my passionate malice and slander, when I'm giving away humility and I'm living out that kind of life, you know what I'm going to see? I'm going to see this life changed. And I'm going to see this family put back together. And I'm going to see this relationship renewed. I'm going to see this dream become reality in somebody. I'm going to be have living out kindness, compassion, these elements that we just talked about. And I'm going to see that and it's going to just bless my socks off. 
And so on Sunday, when it comes time to worship, when it comes time to come into this place and, and to lift up worship, I'm going to want to hear your story. We're going to want to give testimony. It's going to be a beautiful time together because we are bringing our worship. So don't just tick that one off real quickly because you're here. My question is, what worship did you bring today? What life of living for Him this past week are you bringing here today and then offering it up in a song, offering it up in a prayer? What does that look like for you? Look with me at this last verses, verse 17. Verse 16. He says, And the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. He mentions two elements of worship. One is the teaching element, another is the singing element. The teaching element, he said, that he said, let, let, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. I want to make a commitment to you, and you pray for this for me every week, please, is that my teaching will be personally relevant and biblically rooted. Relevant and rooted. Relevant and rooted. I hope that when you leave here any day of the week that you will hear a message that will be very relevant. You'll have one, two, three, four, maybe maybe just one. I'll be happy with one. One area of your life where you say, you know what, my life's going to be different this week because I heard this truth and it was in God's Word and, and now I understand it better and so now I'm going to go out and I'm going to quit being so angry and I'm going to start being far more kind. I'm just going to try to see what happens. See what life change happens there. And I would just love, 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 love to hear that. Also, singing. He mentioned singing there. Singing hymns and songs and all that. We want our singing to be culturally relevant and biblically rooted. You know, we sing the style that we sing not because it's my style, not because it's Jared's style, we sing it because it's Northwest Arkansas style. We want to be culturally relevant. It's KLRC music. In fact, we'll, we'll say that around the office. Do you hear this on KLRC? Do you hear, is this, is this a part of mainstream Northwest Arkansas music? Why? We're trying to be copycats? No, we're trying to be culturally relevant. Make sure the songs are biblically rooted. So why do we do what we do? We do to help you worship. Praise man, if you'll come back up here. Because I, I, I think I just want you to close with reading a verse with me. As you think about this verse, before we go there, I want you to understand that something inside of all of us has to die. And I will dare say it has to die every single day. Do I deal with anger? Yes. Do I deal with impatience? Yes. Do I deal with impure thoughts? Yes. And you know what? The only way I know to deal with them is to execute them, is to kill them, is to capture them, is to put them down, to get rid of them. I can't let them hang on. I can't let them hang around. I've got to get rid of them. I've got to kill them so that the new life can emerge. And when the new life emerges, what happens? All of a sudden, I'm not as angry as I want. There's a lot of Christians that are angry. And they're angry on their, their stand. And they pound hard and they yell loud. And they're just angry. What we need to do is we need to understand that 
Real Christianity, the barriers come down, the bridges are built, and worship is raised up. And this is actually probably one of the most beautiful verses in all the book of Revelation. is when finally all Christians are in heaven. Or when the Christians, a good lot of Christians are in heaven at this point. And, and they're standing around the throne. And you see them from every tribe, every tongue, every, every, every nation. They're all there. All the barriers are down. Okay, all Arabs, Jews that have become believers, they're all there. Americans, they're there. Baptists, Methodists, they're there. And they're not segmented either. We're all there. And then all of a sudden, what happens with the angels? And those who are there, they begin to worship. And that's what happens in heaven. That's exactly how we ought to live here on earth. Read this verse with me. From every tribe, language, people, and nation, I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousands times ten thousand. They encircled the throne. In a loud voice they sang. Say it loudly. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Listen, if you don't like worship, you're not going to like heaven. If you like barriers, you're not going to like heaven. If you like relationships with people, bridges built between one another, you'll love heaven. 